0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. I'd like you to imagine what it would be like to live in a society where you had no reason to be guarded or cynical or fearful of other people. Where everyone you knew was genuine, and where you felt at ease around them. Where you never felt like you were being talked down to, or patronized, or excluded for not quite fitting in with everyone else. Imagine not having to work super hard at pulling yourself together on a, on a morning, in order not to appear weak in front of people who would love to gossip about you, if they, if they were given the chance. Imagine a community where if you did something embarrassing or regrettable, people would show empathy towards you. And they, you know, they might have a bit of a laugh with you, but they'd never seek to sneer at you or shame you. Where, a, t- a place where from time to time you'd be taken aback by um, people's generosity towards you, though it was seemingly unprompted. Imagine not having to spend ages reading small print when you're signing a contract out of fear that someone was trying to rip you off. Imagine being able to fully trust uh, your MP, your estate agent, (laughs) your builder, your mechanic. Imagine not having to assume the worst in people, but being able to let your guard down and relax around others. Now, is this fantasy island? It doesn't sound super real, does it? And if a society like this does exist, it probably doesn't exist in Moss Side, right? Well, according to the Bible, actually, it should do. Because this um, kind of society is what is described in verses 1 to 2 of the passage that we've got today. Have a look back in the Bibles, verses 1 to 2 of chapter 3 of Titus. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. The church is to create this sort of society. The church is supposed to create this community. Ready to do good, law abiding citizens, never slandering or gossiping, being considerate and peaceable, and uh, showing humility to everyone, gentleness to all people. Now, can you imagine if that was consistently lived out, what well, that would be like? How amazing that would be. Well, it all sounds great, uh, but how is this practically going to work? What is going to motivate something that's actually just really countercultural? Well, that's what this passage um, that we find in Titus is speaking to us about today. We've been going through Paul's letter to Titus. Titus was a Christian worker who was based in Crete. And Titus's job was to have oversight over the different churches that were in Crete and to appoint leaders in them. So the Apostle Paul in this letter is writing to Titus and he's instructing him on, on how to do his job, basically. And there's been a real emphasis on good living It's a big theme, we've called it um, Devoted to What is Good, this series. And in today's passage, finally, Paul gets to the motivation for the kind of living that Christians are to to do, are called to. So this is the engine room of the letter. We finally see where the rubber hits the road. We finally see what it is that's actually going to power this sort of crazy level of goodness that we're called to in the letter. So how does this stuff actually work? Now, if you, would like to, if you would love to see a society like the one I um, described, a community, if, you, if you'd love to be a part of that, if you'd love to experience it, then, then listen up, because today the Bible shows how, how it's possible through his people, the church. Now, for Paul, there's a three-step process to achieving this. Um, we're to remember who we were, we're to revel in God's kindness, and we're to respond by doing good. And it's purely coincidental that all those words begin with R. (laughs) Okay, so firstly then, remember who you were. Paul starts by reminding Titus, um, and by extension all the Christians in Crete, of who they used to be before they came to faith in Jesus. Remember who you were, he says. And so for us as Christians today, we need to do the same. So let's read um, verse 3 again. At one time, we two were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, when I learned that I was going to have to preach on a passage like this, I thought seriously about investing in a riot vest because I thought I might not have a particularly positive reaction from people. I feel a bit like Jason Bourne at the moment. I'm kind of looking for exits to sort of be ready to leave, just in case someone tries to, you know, lynch me or something. Um, It's not comfortable reading, is it? It's not a pretty picture. It's not the sort of thing that we want to hear, and it's not the sort of thing that our culture tells us. I mean, I don't think Paul would have made it onto the list of great self-help writers in the 21st century. But this is God's words, and if this is true, if it's true, then we need to hear about it. We need to understand why. And Christians, this, is, this describes who you were. Yes. Now, let's try and unpack a little bit what Paul means in, um, in these verses. I'm going to split it into two. I can't deal with everything in full detail. Uh, we don't have time. But we're going to look at it in two chunks. So one, this idea of foolishness and disobedience. And secondly, this idea of us being haters. So firstly then, we were foolish and disobedient. Now, the consistent teaching of the Bible from cover to cover is that when it comes to God, all humanity naturally disobeys him. This is not just an angry Paul the Apostle. Um, The whole Bible consistently teaches this. We disobey God, and humanity naturally rebels against him. When God originally created the universe, it was born out of love. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had been in perfect relationship for all eternity, and so they created a world so that the love that they had could be shared with other people, shared with us. So we were made, humans, to, be, to live in right relationship with God and with each other. God gave us his law, not in order to constrain us, um, but so that we would know the best way to live. Because as our Heavenly Father, he knows what's best for us. And so he invited us, invited us to trust him, but we didn't trust him. From the beginning, we didn't trust his intentions, we didn't want to do things his way, and instead chose self-reliance. And this is true naturally of of all of us, the Bible teachers. We all reject God. Though he's our glorious creator and sustainer, though we owe him everything, we don't give him thanks for it, Uh, we don't rely on him, and we don't love him. We largely ignore him. We don't want a divine being telling us how to live our lives, thank you very much. But He's our Creator and King and actually has every right to. And instead, we run after our passions and pleasures that only end up enslaving and deceiving us, whether that's money or sex or power or comfort, um, any of these things. Now, our, our rejection of God is severe. It's severe. One writer puts it like this, you know. God God rules sovereignly over all of creation. He tells the universe to form out of chaos, and it does so. He tells the earth to appear, and it obeys. He commands all the laws of physics to work according to their order, and they do so. The mountains rise and fall at his word. He tells the sea to come this far and no farther. He commands all the nebulae and galaxies and the billions of stars that make up our universe to be planted in their exact positions, and they obey. And he tells human beings to trust him, and we go, no. It's crazy. So we're disobedient. Secondly. We uh, were haters, it says. So if we look again at verses, um, verse 3b, just at the end there. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, Paul says this idea of us being hate, haters is grouped with envy and malice. Now, I, know, I think we all know what it's like to be envious of someone. Um, entire systems of advertising and marketing are designed um, to appeal to our envy. Um, It's not hard to find envy in ourselves or in our our society. I don't think that's massively controversial. Malice and hatred, though. It's going a bit far, isn't it, Paul? Chill out. Um, I mean, I don't know how many Christians here consider themselves genuinely to have been hateful people before they became Christians, before they came to faith in Jesus. Like, actually a, a hater. Well, one reason we find the Bible's teaching difficult here, I think, is that we live in a society that considers itself progressive. It considers itself civilized. Um, we condemn all forms of hatred. Hatred itself is a faux pas in our society. It's not a cool thing to do, and rightly so. But what that means is that we can sort of lull ourselves into a false sense of security when actually there can be expressions of hatred that sort of leak beneath the surface of our, of our uh, culture. And there are points where you can see it seeping through the cracks. Now, one example of this is our attitude towards class. Um, In our society, it's still quite acceptable to refer to people, often youth, from poor backgrounds, by the term chav. Now, this is a derogatory term, um, and it damages people. It depersonalizes them. It assigns real flesh and blood people with thoughts and dreams and fears. Um, to an underclass in society that we can then dismiss and ridicule at will. And yeah, it's it's acceptable, largely. Uh, The London rapper Plan B um, grew up on a council estate, uh, comes from a poor background himself in London. He gives talks on this issue because he does a lot of work with um, poor youth in London. And he says that using this term, chav, is no less offensive and damaging than using a racist or a sexist term. In a TED Talk, he mentioned how a lot of poorer kids feel isolated from society. And that's one of the reasons that um, things like the London riots happened. No, it's not as if they are diminished from all responsibility, but they, grew, they grow up in an area where they feel like they're not a part of society and society doesn't want them. He said this, If you call kids words that are derogatory to them just because they were unlucky enough to be born into a family that couldn't afford to give them the education you had, they're going to hate you. And you're going to hate them for the acts that they do. It's a vicious circle. By calling these kids these words, you push them out of society. Hating and being hated right there in our society. That's not the only way um, hatred comes in, though. I mean, I think many expressions of hatred in our culture come through a sense of righteous indignation, or as I like to call it, self-righteous indignation. This is how it works. Uh, We see someone who's done something wrong or harmful, normally towards us, and we use their faults to justify a level of resentment or anger or bitterness um, that is far beyond anything that could be considered reasonable. Now, we may rightly feel hurt. Uh, We may rightly feel the impulse for justice. But along with those things, Uglier feelings of contempt and malice can sort of be smuggled in the back door. Now, as long as someone has done us wrong, we feel like we can justify these sorts of feelings, all sorts of hateful thoughts and actions, and we're not bothered. Now, there's loads of examples of this in society. Road rage, classic example. How do you react when someone cuts you up? I mean, some people just scream blue murder. It's insane. They become like a different person political and ideological comments on social media. Social media is a great place to see hatred. Um, I remember the last uh, election, and just seeing the sort of comments that people on both sides of the political spectrum were making about other people who would vote for another um, party to them. it, It really was poisonous. Now, it's one thing to think that another party's policies are harmful. It's quite another to dismiss anyone who votes for them as scum and worse. Self-righteous indignation combined with ridicule is a great cover for our hatred. Sticking with social media, let me tell you um, about a guy I used to be friends with on Facebook. Now, let's call him Tom. He's not called Tom. Um, Tom is a guy who lives the high life. None of you know him, by the way, don't worry. Um, he, he lives the high life. He's a model, obviously, good-looking guy. Uh, lives in New York City, and he's a real estate agent. Um, He dresses well, he's he's attractive, and he seemingly, from his Facebook feed, gets to hang out with all the elite of New York society. Now, he's also the kind of guy that comes across as a little bit self-obsessed on Facebook, I'm not going to lie. He has this incredibly pretentious profile picture, which is obviously taken from one of his uh, modelling shoots, where he sat looking moodily at the camera on a chair in a suit with his top button open, just like gazing with like this sort of shadow coming over his face with his head on his hand. I'm kind of like, hey, who are you? You know, he, he'd post constant selfies of himself at high-class parties, pouting with other exclusively good-looking people um, before tagging it with annoying hashtags. His status updates were just like one clang after another. Um, the, the absolute highlight for me was when he was bragging on a Facebook status about how he managed to serve Natalie Portman at the Guggenheim. Uh, yeah, I gave, a, I gave her a drink and uh, I cracked, a, cracked a joke and I made her laugh. That was brilliant. Now he clearly was quite self-indulgent. And he didn't, you know, have the self-awareness to be able to see how kind of tragic he was, to be honest. Um, and I became rather obsessed with this guy, I've got to admit. Um, I, I found him sort of equal, equal parts annoying and hilarious and fascinating um, to the point where, like, you know, I'd, I'd love looking at this guy's statuses and I'd invite other people to check out, like, his, yeah, his... his, his social media feed. I'd sort of parade his shame in front of my friends. Like, hey Ben, check out this moron. And we'd sort of look at him and go through the posts and have a good laugh, smug in the satisfaction that we were better than him. Now the question was, question is rather, why did his self absorption bother me so much? Why did I have this sort of reaction to him? And, you know, Okay, the guy might have had some issues with vanity, but why did I need to sneer at him? Why did I need to invite other people to do the same? Wasn't my ridicule really just a mask for contempt and enabling me to sort of look down at someone else whilst feeling great about myself? I certainly wasn't treating him as a person made in the image of God. It was horrible. And yet, you know, that's just one example of things I think is quite rife in, in culture, particularly social media culture. We, I think we all often do this. Entire websites and TV programs exist for us to sneer at other people, channeling our inner hatred for them. But it's acceptable. It seeps. It goes under the radar. It's a foolish, disobedient, hateful. Paul says to these Christians, don't think too highly of yourselves. Don't think too highly of yourselves. This is who you used to be. Now, Christians, do you believe that this is what you used to be? This is who you were. And the truth is that in many ways, this is still what we're like. We can still be affected by envy and malice and hatred. We see... Um, now, as, as we'll see, God's salvation has set us free from the power of hate and foolishness. We're now able and willing to love God and serve him in a way that we could never do before. But we're not perfect. And some of these sins still remain in us to varying degrees. I know that in this room, there will be feelings of envy and malice. Some of you may hold resentment to other people in this room. Some of you will have this selfish um, self-righteous indignation that you'll be using to cover hatred towards other people. And if that's the case, then come to Christ for forgiveness. It's available, but we need to understand and be realistic about what we're like. So remember who you were. By the way, um, one, of the things that real, one of the things we realize as Christians is that understanding who we were gives us absolutely no right to be self-righteous and look down our noses at other people, particularly people who don't believe the same things we do. Um, This truth of our universal disobedience to God is a great leveler. It means that like, when it comes to the mess that goes on in our world and our brokenness, we're all in it together. There's no one better than anyone else. Okay, so let's move on from the grim stuff and uh, get a bit more positive. So second then, so firstly we need to... Remember who we were. But secondly, we need to revel in God's kindness. So Paul moves on to the next logical step. Now, verse 3 may have been bleak, but the contrast with verse 4 onwards is massive. Let's look at verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Kindness and love. Kindness and love. Those are the character traits that we're told God possesses. Now, let me ask you a question. How often do you think of God as kind? As kind. Now, we're used to thinking of God as good, right? God is good. It's, sort of, it's, it's cliche almost. But what do we even mean by God being good? I, often, we of, I think that we often consider God as good in the sense that he does the right thing. Yeah, that he's an upstanding citizen of heaven. He does things by the book. Whose book? His book, I guess. (laughs) Now, God does do the right thing. But if we think of goodness purely in those terms, that says nothing about how God actually feels about you. You can do the right thing and do things by the book and actually be quite cold inside. So the reason I say this is that as Christians, we easily believe that God is cold towards us. Have you ever been aware of your failings and your sins and your inconsistency and think that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are looking down on you from heaven, sort of arms folded, (laughs) sighing. He's done it again, hasn't he? Yeah. That's why it's great news that God is kind. You can't be kind and cold. You can't be both. In contrast to our envy and malice and hatred, Titus declares a God who is warm. That's what he's like. And this kindness and love are at the heart of the Christian message. You see, one of the core messages, one of the core things at the heart of the Christian faith is this, that God loves haters. He's a lover of haters. Though we dishonor him, though we ignore him, though we show constant self-centeredness, and we fail to love others as we should, God still loves us. Now, when you think about it, that's pretty bonkers, right? Right? Um, let's play a short game. I'm going to call it, If Jez Was God. <laughs> now, don't be alarmed. I know some of you are uh, probably thinking he's finally happened. He's, he's bonkers. He's gone mad. He's, <laughs> we've lost him. <laughs> but bear with me, right? If I was God and I created you, a frightening thought, admittedly. If you treated me the way we treat God, I'm going to be honest, guys, it would not end well for you. <laughs> It would not end well for you. Someone cuts into the queue in front of me at Aldi, and I go crazy. Like, you know, if, you were, if I was the almighty God, and you were, like, committing cosmic treason against me, there would be no mercy. No mercy. Can you imagine the indignation then? Game over real quick. And I'm sure, actually, most of us would do the same. But amazingly, that's not how God treats us. Now, the thing is, though, And this is crucial. He could do. He could do. And if he did, he wouldn't be wrong. It would be completely justifiable for him to treat us as we deserve in terms of how we we treat him. Justice would be served if he wiped us all off the planet instantly. And there would be no argument against it. But instead, he shows kindness. And Christian friend, he shows kindness to you. There's mercy for you. In the gospel, we see that there is more mercy in God than there is sin in you. Isn't that amazing? So how has he shown mercy? Well, let's read the first part of verse 5. So he saves us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So he saved us. Rather than leave us to the consequences of our actions, God has saved us. Now notice what prompts him to do this though. Verse 5 said that it's not because of any good deed we've done, but purely according to his mercy. We do not deserve God's salvation, and we've done nothing to earn it. God did not look at you and think, Yeah, you know what, they're not perfect. They're obviously not perfect. But, you know, they really, they really love their spouse. And they're really kind to their kids. And they read The Guardian. And they read the Bible, and they serve at church. Therefore, you know, they can be one of mine. No, that's not how it works. Against the backdrop of our sin, there's no good work that we could ever do to deserve God's favor. The Bible teaches that the only thing that stands between us and oblivion is God's mercy. It's the only thing that we can lean on. So what does this salvation entail then? Well, let's read the rest of verses 5 to 7. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now, these verses are complicated, and they're sort of jam-packed full of gospel goodness that I can't really talk about in, in their entirety, because we'd be, all day, be here all day. But what they do show us is, is that salvation, the salvation that God brings is total, and it deals with our past, our present, and our future. It deals with our past. We're told in verse 7 that we're justified by His grace, that is the grace of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in the previous verse. Now, to be justified is kind of Christian jargon for being made right with God, being declared not guilty. So despite our sin and brokenness, we get to be in the right, of, in the right with God. Because of Jesus. His perfect life and sacrificial death make us right with him. Our slate is wiped clean. Our past is dealt with and we have a new start. We have a new life. It tells, the um, the verse says that we're reborn. We get the washing of rebirth. Our guilt before God is washed away and we're given new identities. And this leads on to the effects of salvation on our present. As Christians, we're given the Holy Spirit. Generously, it says, he's poured out on us. The Spirit gives us power to live good lives, lives that obey God and serve other people, lives that don't just push God out and ignore him. Now, through him, we're freed from that enslavement to sin. And though we're not made perfect in this life, and we do mess up, over time, we see more and more of that work of the Spirit. Just recently, I've been chatting to a few different Christian guys about struggles in their lives, and a number of them have been talking about how they've seen new hope recently. (laughs) A lot of them have had issues and struggles, some of which have been going on for years and years. And they genuinely thought that these are the sort of things and habits that they would never get rid of and that they'd carry on as long as they lived. But by God's grace... They've seen the Holy Spirit work in them. They've seen that they've been able to turn corners and make real progress. They've been given a hope that they didn't have before. Hope that they can change. They can grow. Now, this hope comes from God's Spirit working in our lives in the present. And this salvation affects our future. Verse 7 says that because we're made right with God, justified, we become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So we have an inheritance as Christians that is eternal life, endless, bountiful life, as perfect and idyllic as what we described at the beginning of, of this sermon. Where all sin is gone and we can treat each other with perfect love and respect without any, anything inhibiting that at all. No pain, no illness, perfect relationship with each other and with God. We'll finally be able to see this kind and loving God face to face in that day. And we'll dwell with him forever as we were made to do. That's the hope of the Christian. So, past, present, and future, sorted. sorted. So, revel in God's kindness. Praise him for sh- showing such warmth toward you. Though you've done nothing to deserve it, meditate on it. Be strengthened as you go back to your work or your family or whatever this, this week. Revel in God's kindness. Finally then, respond by doing good. So Paul's gone through the gospel, he's explained who we were in our sin, and God's kindness in saving us, and we reach the final step in his logic, that good living comes from gospel understanding. Let's read verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So Paul wants Titus to stress these things, that is the truth of God's salvation, to the Christians so that they will be devoted to good works. Now, as we've been going through Titus, we've subtitled the series, Devoted to What is Good, um, and that's taken from this this verse. Now, as Christians, we want to be do-gooders in the best sense of the term. We want to be passionate about serving other people. We want to be devoted to it. And the Bible teaches us that the best motivation, the only motivation really for the kind of crazy living that God commands of us, comes from understanding the gospel. How does this work then? How does the gospel motivate good living? Well, through the gospel, we know what it's like to benefit from God's goodness. We were lost, we were hateful people, and yet God has shown us kindness and love. Now, grasping that is going to change you. If I truly know how good it is to be forgiven, how blessed I am to have received mercy when I deserve punishment, then surely I'm going to want to extend that goodness out to other people. Now, is that easy? No. No, no, no. Take take verse 2 again. Always to... Always be gentle towards everyone. Do I always want to be gentle towards everyone? Not, not really, as most of you know. Who you know me? Um, what about the person who hurts me? Do I want to be? Do I want to be gentle towards them? What about the person who's obviously self-centered? Do I want to seek their good? What about Mister? I met Natalie Portman at the Guggenheim. Do I want to show gentleness towards him? Not really, not really, if I'm honest. In the moment, I'd rather rather sneer at him and shame him and have a good laugh at him for being such an idiot. But then I think about the gospel. I think about what I was like when God saved me, how disobedient and hateful I was, how disobedient and hateful I still am. And yet God doesn't shame or ridicule me. He doesn't harbor bitterness in his heart. He's not passive-aggressive towards me. He doesn't talk about me behind my back. Instead, he shows nothing but warmth, love, and patience towards me. Now, if I grasp that beauty of God's character, then I realize that it's a better way to live. Better way to live than I am living at the moment. To do good to people, even difficult people, instead of being self-righteous. If I want to honor the God who has shown such goodness to me, then surely I should act like him when it comes to treating others. Now, the standard of good that the Bible requires is it's high, and it's really countercultural. You do not find this sort of attitude everywhere. And that's why it can only blossom from an understanding of the gospel. So, Christian parents, take note. Do you want your kids to be devoted to what is good? Do you want them to be effective witnesses in their schools to grow in love for Jesus? Stress the gospel. Otherwise, they may just be well-behaved little Pharisees. Life group leaders, Bible teachers, do you want those under your care to grow in maturity and love for God and for each other? Stress the gospel. Remind them who they were. Tell them about God's kindness and salvation. Tell them they don't deserve it and that they did nothing to earn it. And yet God loves them and cares for them and has saved them according to his mercy. The gospel is the motivation for this kind of living. And the Christian who understands the gospel rightly can act and think in remarkable ways towards others. It is possible. Great example of this just came last summer in Charleston, South Carolina. You may have heard the news story. White supremacist gunman, Dylan Roof, opened fire inside an African-American church Bible study. He shot and killed nine people, including the pastor, in the hope of starting a race war. Roof later fled the scene, he was captured, and then eventually confessed. And at his first court, court appearance, relatives of those who'd been murdered, the victims, um, were given the opportunity to speak directly to him through a video link. Now remarkably, the speaker's sentiments were marked by offers of pity and forgiveness for this man. We have no room for hate, one said. We have to forgive. I pray God on your soul. One woman, Nadine Collier, lost her mother in the shootings, and she said this, I forgive you. You took something really precious away from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. It hurts me. It hurts a lot of people. But God forgive you and I forgive you. These people knew what it was to be forgiven by God. And the gospel had affected them so much that they could even publicly forgive someone who had murdered friends and family members. This is the power of gospel-fueled goodness. Just as we finish then, what is the ultimate effect of this? Verse 8, these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Now, when Paul says everyone, he doesn't mean everyone in the church. He means everyone. Not just people in the Christian community, but outsiders too, people who aren't Christians. And this takes us right back to where we started. Friends, if we grasp the gospel and we live as God commands, devoted to what is good, slandering no one, being considerate, showing true gentleness, then as Mike was preaching the other week, our good works make the gospel message beautiful. We can create a community that outsiders are attracted to and feel comfortable in. They may even see it as a haven from the chaos that goes on in the rest of their lives. They can see the way that we love each other and care for each other. And in turn, they can learn also of the good news of God's kindness and perhaps even receive the salvation He offers, all to the glory of God. So, Christians, remember who you were, revel in God's kindness to you, and respond by doing good. And if you're not a Christian here today, then we're chuffed that you're here. Really glad. And if today's whet your appetite, if you're sort of interested in learning more about what we believe as Christians, then Do take the opportunity, chat to me, chat to Mike, chat to someone here, again, who looks like they know what they're doing. Um, Have a look at the books um, and leaflets and things we've got at the front, filling a welcome card. Find out about this great, kind, and loving God. Let's pray. Lord God, you are kinder than we know and understand your grace and mercy is far greater than we can, we can grasp, often because we don't really understand how bad we are and how broken we are. Lord, give us the humility to see our state before you. And may that make us all the more amazed by who you are and your salvation. Lord, help us to do good. May Grace Church be a community that people feel relaxed in. May it be somewhere that people feel comfortable in. And may we and others who don't yet know you come to trust and honour you to your glory. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.